can't pay the IRS, haven't filed in a while, receiving threatening letters? Yeah, it's about to get worse. The IRS is hiring an army of agents targeting hardworking Americans like you. You need warriors on your side. You need Tax Network USA. Tax Network USA has brilliant strategies to solve your IRS problems quickly and in your favor. For instance, they've discovered a limited-time special offer that the IRS is willing to waive $1 billion in penalties. Find out if you qualify before it's too late. Never call the IRS alone. Let Tax Network USA attorneys handle it. They have preferred direct lines to the IRS. They know which agents to work with and which to avoid. They've resolved over $1 billion in tax debts and offer a best-in-class guarantee. Schedule your free consultation now. Call 1-800-245-6000. That's 1-800-245-6000. Or visit TNUSA.com slash Victor. TNUSA.com slash Victor. <laughs> Hello, gentlemen. This is the Victor Davis Hanson Show. I'm Jack Fowler, the host, and the star and the namesake is, of course, Victor Davis Hanson, who is the Martin and Ely Anderson Senior Fellow at the Hoover Institution and the Wayne and Marsha Buskey Distinguished Fellow in History at Hillsdale College. Victor has an official website, The Blade of Perseus, which is found on the World Wide Webs at victorhanson.com. You should go there a lot, and I'll tell you more about that later in this podcast today. Much to talk about the nagging of the bureaucracy against Americans when it comes to your kitchen and so much else. And I think, though, Victor, we'll first start off by talking about fat. And New York City has now passed a new law to protect fat people from being, I don't know, discriminated against. Victor, it's crazy, as usual. But we'll get your thoughts on this and so many other things when we come back from these important messages. Have you heard of cancer-fighting foods? The American Cancer Society discovered diets rich in fruits and veggies may actually lower, lower your risk of cancer. Hopefully you hear this and run to the store for five servings of fruits and vegetables every day. If not you should consider adding Field of Greens to your daily health regimen. Each fruit and veggie in Field of Greens was doctor-selected for studied health benefits. There's a heart health group, lungs, kidneys, and metabolism groups, even healthy weight. What your body needs is found in each scoop of delicious Field of Greens. Will Field of Greens prevent, treat, or cure cancer? No, but it's so powerful it promises at your next checkup, your doctor will notice your improved health or your money back. I got you 15% off and free rush shipping. Visit fieldofgreens.com and use the promo code VICTOR, V-I-C-T-O-R, for your discount. That's promo code VICTOR at fieldofgreens.com, fieldofgreens.com. 
Hey, folks, if you've been listening to our show, you've probably heard Victor talk about Hillsdale College. It's one of the few colleges in the U.S. still interested in teaching truth. What you probably didn't know is that they have over 40 free online courses. And Victor is one of the professors in three of those courses, American Citizenship and its Decline, based on Victor's book, The Dying Citizen, How Progressive Elites, Tribalism, and globalization are destroying the idea of America, the Second World Wars, based on his book by the same name, and Athens and Sparta, partly based on his book, A War Like No Other, How the Athenians and Spartans Fought the Peloponnesian War. Don't you wish Victor would have been one of your professors in college? Well, now you can join him as he covers some of the main ideas of his books with Hillsdale College's online courses all available for free. That's right, for free. The courses are seven to nine episodes long, and they are self-spaced, so you can take them whenever and wherever. I think I'm going to start with American Citizenship and Its Decline, where Victor explores the history of citizenship in the West and the threats it faces today. Threats like the erosion of the middle class, the disappearance of our borders, the growth of an unaccountable deep state, and the rise of globalist organizations. Hey, start your free course with Victor Davis Hansen today. Go right now to hillsdale.edu slash VDH to start. It's free and it's easy to get started. That's hillsdale.edu slash VDH to start. hillsdale.edu slash VDH. <laughs> We're back with the Victor Davis Hanson show. So, Victor, you know, I could lose 40 pounds or 50 pounds myself. Just want I have, to I, before, you, before you continue, I have a perfect suggestion. Go ahead. Well, I lost 38 pounds. Yeah. And it's very easy what you do. You get COVID and then you get long COVID and it takes away your appetite and your body just sort of is on hyperimmune response. So you don't have to exercise because it's burning all the calories all the time. And lo and behold, I weigh today what I did the day I was married in 1977, thanks to long COVID. And I th keep thinking that I still have traces of it after my encounter with Mr. B allergy. And it's still working. So I eat whatever I want more or less, and I can't gain any weight. Try it. Well, that's uh, that's uh, one way of looking at it. There's always a silver <laughs> silver lining in your long-tortured cloud, uh, <laughs> and it has been long and tortured. Hey, let me just read this uh, headline from the Daily Mail. Fat people will be protected from discrimination under law passed in New York, as critics warn, it opens door to, quote, sue anyone and everything. Subheadline, the bill will outlaw height or weight discrimination in work and accommodation. Now, Victor, I I don't know what this will lead to, except suits, as is alleged. New York does have a few conservative Republicans on its city council, believe it or not. They mostly come from Staten Island. But... Um, can you see someone not suing because, uh, yeah, I weigh 479 pounds, but I want to be a fireman or I'm, 
you know, I went to yeah, I can the movie see that. theater in New York, and I'm sorry, I, these seats, I can't fit in these seats. How about I was on a plane uh, not too long ago, and I flew all the way to the Naples area airport from Dallas, from Fresno to Dallas, and I sat next to somebody who was quite large, quite, quite large, as in obese. And uh, what could I say? I'd be discriminatory. So I didn't say a word, but my hand rest, I had one hand rest and he had two hand rest. And I had one foot space. He had three foot spaces, but he had to. He was very large. But it's it's very funny. I'm always interested in these cultural collisions. And by that, I mean the left point of view up until three or four years ago was that there was an epidemic of childhood obesity. And this was caused by junk food, the McDonaldization of America. Remember that, Jack? And that we were endangering the lives of young people because they were fat. And they were fat because corporate America was giving them trans fats. And we have to stop that because obesity is a killer. Right. And, can, and, I, can I interject, yeah, interject yeah. Victor? Just remember Michelle Obama. And we yes, changed no, that's school a good point. lunches. Absolutely. They had to include um, broccoli or whatever, which, of course, <laughs> the kids always dump Absolutely. Them. And then all of a sudden we go now to the opposite extreme. It's analogous to the decades I was a professor, all I heard at the faculty proverbial lounge, that is our meeting rooms before our meetings, or I'd go out to have coffee with faculty was, it wasn't like this, Jack. I'm just using pseudonyms. Dean Smith doesn't do anything. They always make deans. You know, they populate like rabbits. You get a dean and then he's got an empire bill. Then he gets assistant dean and assistant assistant dean. And then he doesn't do anything. He's lazy. And they always get the guys that were failures as teachers, failures as scholars, and they promote them upward. And then as soon as they get there, they're they're padding their resume with bromides and shibboleths and we're overstock. And, and you know, you look at the statistics and our departments only had – uh, you know, five fifty percent replacement. Why the administration grew at one hundred fifty? That was the that was the mantra. And now, diversity, equity, inclusion. It's wonderful. We should, you know, we should have diversity, equity, inclusion. They're, they are spreading like rabbits, and there's not a peep, not one peep out of this faculty who was so angry and mad at the administrative bloat. Suddenly, it's sort of like the same thing with obesity. What I'm getting at is it reminds me so much of the so-called party line directives that come out of communism. Until June 22nd, literally to the hour, Stalin's red communiques were that Germany was a national socialist party. Hitler was, and Hitler had taken out the corrupt Western bourgeoisie democracies that were exploitive capitalist powers in Norway and Belgium and Holland and France. And this, and then all of a sudden it was, bing! you know, this is comrade. They're attacking the motherland these fascist monsters. And that's what the left is doing with these issues like obesity and administra- D, you know, administrators and all of this stuff. And big pharma, I always thought they hated big pharma. And then all of a sudden Moderna and Pfizer come along and all of a sudden the vaccination, if you dare question big pharma's profits 
or profit margin or whether they really had as careful testing as possible or the incidence of heart problems for males between the ages of five and 20 that got vaccinated or women with cysts and so that's just heresy you cannot do that or if you say big pharma is endangering the lives of young children because they're injecting them with these very very dangerous uh hormonal drugs to transgender from one sex to another and the big american medical association which the left hates the american medical association is greenlighting these very dangerous surgeries of removing breasts removing genitalia this is just big pharma and big medicine pushing down very dangerous untried bromides onto the american consumer and what nothing it's the same thing it's party line yeah victor one other um thought on the on the uh on the fat front and having just can't say fat well, okay, chubby. I don't know what to say no. anymore. I, I, I don't think we can even use the word the. So I'm not. You'll just have to. I think it's something like arrest me. Beautifully ample. Oh, okay. All right. Well, everyone who's beautifully ample knows, and who's still alive today after coming through COVID knows that they dodged a bullet, right? I mean, so it wasn't that that uh, all that long ago? I don't mean. To, I was giggling there about this. But uh, if you were if you were obese or hyper obese, the odds are with COVID was that you were a goner. So we know the the uh, uh, the downside of of all this, and especially in New York City, right, where there was such um, the initial um, onslaught of of COVID, even though it was national, was kind of glorified in a media sense there because of a Andrew Cuomo and his and his actions. But, uh, you know, people know this is a, a problem and to glorify it now and glorify it culturally. And you will have your your influencers come out. And I know they already exist. I don't follow them. But, uh, you know, fat is 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 uh, beautiful and beautiful in a way to be imitated. Part is, of it is uh, it's the it's the internal, relentless, 24 seven search for victimhood and being oppressed and there's not enough oppressors and victimizers to fulfill the demand of the oppressed and the victimized we have uh, renewed after george floyd and a new racial oppressed class and they're just and that's why we get it we end up with jesse's juicy small incidents or duke lacrosse or you know things like that because they're, they have to concoct these same thing with sexes and the me too finally me too started legitimately they had legitimate complaints about creeps like harvey and then it got into the say them witch trials they couldn't find enough oppressors and the same thing now is the transgendered movement now it says well wait civil rights movement's not over with America's still racist. America's still sexist. It's still homophobic. We had the gay movement. You had the women's movement. You had the civil rights movement. But you guys forgot the transgender. And now we're full blown. And then the obese come in and say, hey, wait a minute. There's a whole group of us. We're the biggest of all. We're the biggest group of people of all. And we have our rights. And we're not going to be body shamed. And you know what? 
Sports Illustrated is going to put pe- they should put people in with bikinis where you can not even see the bottom part of the bikini because the right. stomach protrudes. That's what beauty is. Yeah. We don't believe your white Christian male exploitive constructs of beauty. They're just arbitrary. They have nothing to do with nature. That's what that's what they're telling us. Normal is evil. Yeah. yeah. Well, Victor, you know, uh, if, if fat is, uh, uh, you know, the thing now, at least in New York City, there'll be a lot more dirty plates around. They'll have to go in dishwashers. And we have news from the Biden administration, uh, new standards for, for dishwashers that they are to uh, use less water and less power. And I think that means what we're going to get out of dishwashers is dirtier dishes. We also have regulations. I think I think the um, uh, the old you know General Electric light bulbs are not to be allowed at all or produced at all, uh, permitted in the United States. What the hell else was was? Oh, of course. How about shower the, the shower, shower head. heads, right? Yeah. Gas I'd... stoves. So uh, you toilets know, don't is... toilets don't flush, as you yeah. said. Yeah, but some of that predates. Um, it predates uh, uh, Biden, actually predates Obama. I think with the light bulbs, it was the Bush administration that was so into those. We need those corkscrew yeah, yeah. light bulbs. So this is all in all, it's it's a uh, you know uh, nit. It's not nitpicking. It's an assault on how we live in our homes to make uh, l- less ability to see, less ability to be clean, less ability to clean, less ability to cook. It's uh, it seems intentional. Well, I, I don't know why they don't. They I don't let the private sector. If I mean, if you have a light bulb and it's three times more expensive and it takes ten percent, then people will go. But even though they'll pay that, but that's a choice they can make. So maybe the person can say, you know what, I've got a regular uh, type of light bulb with a filament in it and I'm just going to wait till it burns out and when it burns out I will buy a little bit more expensive one that saves my electric bill and doesn't get as hot and let the people decide let the the market offer alternatives but they never do that because they think they're stupid and the people who are making these rules are all people in Malibu or Cambridge Massachusetts or Atherton who knows where they're from but they are not subject to the consequences of their own politics and ideology. They they don't. I don't. I will. Be, I I don't have to bet. You remember that we learned that the aggregate the aggregate volume of the Obama's estate was two thousand gallons of propane that had to be filled up for the Obamas in that what there's four of them in that Martha's Vineyard $14 million state. Why do they need uh, uh, to, is it to heat a pool? Is it to do what? And you can bet your britches that his Hawaii mansion, like Al Gore, was one of what, what Al Gore was something like 500 times more the uh, use of electricity than any other person of comparable family size. So, you know, it's like John Kerry getting back to him. He needs the jet to go fight for climate change. It's sort of the the ruling class has all of these ideas for the nobodies and we're going to mandate them. And then it all, you know, well, it, it all comes around. And I think a lot of people ignore it. And I don't know what to say. 
Okay. I just I, I just think these people are have been so discredited. The people on the media, the people in the universities, the people in the federal bureaucracies, the people in the corporate boardroom, the Disney people, the Delta Airlines people, the Anheuser-Busch people, the Ivy League faculties, and they all have one thing in common. They love America's capitalist bounty. The more they hate it, the more they make fun of the middle class, the more they try to warp it, the more they want stuff. I've been looking at my daughter's going to move. So she is going to move up in the foothills, right? Kind of a liberal area outside Sacramento because right. for a variety of reasons. But I've been looking at houses for her and it's it's striking how how the upper classes have created a really nice aesthetic for new homes, and they're all about the same. There's no wall-to-wall carpets, which I like because I'm allergic to stuff, but it's beautiful hardwood, and you go into the kitchen, and they're not like the kitchen I grew up or you grew up, these little tiny cramped things. They're right. the size of living rooms. Right. And then they, the more burners, gas or electric, the better. There's not four. Remember, we could go up at two and four. They're like 12. And then the refrigerators are kind of, they look like part of the wall, and they're... right. They're not 18 or 20 cubic feet, which I think ours was 12 or 10. They're 40. I mean, they're huge, like Nancy Pelosi's ice cream, $40,000 back-to-back refrigerators. But there's a, there's a and then stainless steel, everything, and beautiful imported ceramic tile, hardwood floors, and at least 3,000 square feet. And these are very wealthy and mostly liberal people that like that aesthetic. And yet, how could you be in that profile and then say that everybody should, you know, take the subway and live in a high rise and have electric only appliances when you're not subject to that? I don't understand it. And I mean, who... Who are we talking about? We're talking about the John Kerry's of the world, the Elizabeth Warrens, the Bernie Sanders. Bernie Sanders, remember, has three homes. The Barack Obamas, he has three mansions, not home, mansions, uh, from which Michelle every fourth night ventures forth and tells us how racist America is from her Hawaii or her Colorado, Washington, or her Martha's Vineyard estate. And Joe Biden is the same thing with his three homes. Bernie Sanders, Joe Biden, it doesn't matter what their politics are. Anybody who harks and hectors and snarky and tells people how they should live in a really anal retentive way usually doesn't abide by those bromides. Just a rule. They don't. Right. Projection is is uh, is what they're all about. Well, Victor, somebody somebody does care about uh, the middle class or the people oppressed by the regulators, and that's somebody is uh, Victor Davis Hanson. And we're going to talk about some pieces you've written for your website right after these important messages. Warmer, sunnier days are calling. Fuel up for them with Factors No Prep No Mess Meals. Meet your wellness goals in time for summer thanks to the menu of chef-crafted meals with options like Calorie Smart, Protein Plus, and Keto. Factors Fresh, never-frozen meals are dietitian-approved and ready to eat. 
in just two minutes. So no matter how busy you are, you'll always have time to enjoy nutritious, great tasting meals. Make today the day you kickstart a new healthy routine. What are you waiting for? For our listeners, Factor is giving you 50% off your first box plus 20% off your next month when you use the promo code VICTOR50 at factormeals.com slash VICTOR50. Choose from six menu preferences to help you manage calories, maximize protein intake, avoid meat, or simply eat well-balanced. With 35 different meals and more than 60 add-ons to choose from every week, you'll always have new flavors to explore. Remember, to get 50% off your first box plus 20% off your next month, head to factormeals.com slash Victor50, that's V-I-C-T-O-R-5-0, and use the code Victor50, that's code Victor50, at factormeals.com slash Victor50 to get 50% off your first box plus 20% off your next month while your subscription is active. At Just the News, we break the stories others in the media ignore or are too afraid to tell. We did it on Russia collusion, Hunter Biden, and the security and intelligence failures that preceded January 6th. Our stories have real impact and reach because we stick to the facts. I'm John Solomon. You can help me expand our honest, unvarnished, and unbiased reporting by becoming a premium member at Just the News. You'll get an ad-free experience and exclusive member-only access to events, and you'll be helping us dig up more truth. Join today at justthenews.com slash subscribe. We're back with the Victor Davis Hanson Show. As I mentioned at the beginning of the podcast, Victor has an official website. It's called The Blade of Perseus, and it's found at victorhanson.com. It's loaded with links to his books and appearances on other podcasts and radio shows and the articles he writes for American Greatness in a syndicated column. And also the pieces, they're ultra, they're called ultra pieces, that he writes um, originally and exclusively for the Blade of Perseus. And to read them, and if you're a fan of Victor, you should be reading everything Victor writes, and it's including these pieces. To read them, you need to subscribe. $5 gets you in the door, and it's $50 for the year discounted. So why don't you do that? Go to victorhanson.com and sign up, subscribe. And we're going to talk now about one of the pieces, uh, the exclusive ultra pieces that Victor has uh, written. He's always writing. And this is a um, right now up to part two. Victor, I don't know if you'll have any more uh, parts in this series, but it's called The Unappreciated Rustics, Historians in a Motor Shop. And then uh, you have a, a second part. So Victor, this is great stuff as usual. I, it's a little, obviously it's not so, well, you talk about how, how policy and, and the like works into this, but much of this is reflection of your your own life. So why don't you tell us about the unappreciated rustics, why you why you've well, written this and what you've written. Well I think I think our intelligentsia has this idea that people with inquisitive minds or trained minds or naturally talented minds gravitate to Wall Street or law school or academia. They don't. They don't necessarily. So when you take a field like farming, everybody thinks, well, they're just farmers or just the guys that are grumpy on tractors. And I was just trying to think that in my experience on farming, did I encounter people that were as bright or brighter than people with PhDs 
that were involved in farming or farm related um, mechanics? And the answer was yes. So I, I remember when I was a little boy, there was a, my hometown, there was an older guy and he, w- he had electric motor shop. And that in those days, you know, we all had electric motors for pumps from centrifugal pumps or any turbine pumps. And you would take the, the pump, the head, the motor off, take it into him. Or if you had an electric grinder or if you had an old generator in your car or if you had uh, some type of pump on the ranch, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. You took it into him. He took off these. They were very heavy. You remember, they were really heavy. Uh, steel, and then he would rewind them and fix them. And then, but it was so dusty. And he had this dank little place in there where he would sit there by himself and rewind these. And then all over, when you went in the shop, there were just all these, God, it was like a menagerie, just every imaginable type of electric motors, like one horsepower, 20 horsepower big things, huge and tiny with the little tag, you know, with a wire tag in the paper that Wilson pick up, you know, and some of them that weren't picked up. And then we would pick up. I would help my grandfather carry the electric motors. He would all, he always paid. He never mailed a check. Never. He would drive all the way to Fresno to hand the check over to the person. He'd look him in the eye and say, this is your payment, Mr. So at one point I remember I went to college and I went overseas and I came back and, you know, my grandfather passed on and I was farming. I went into this because I was now my grandfather needing these things rewound. And this guy had died. But I had remembered that when I was in graduate school, I'd come and help my dad get one. And there was a Mexican-American guy there that was his apprentice. And by the time I got back, I gathered that this guy um owned it with his brother and they were very good because I'd hear farmers. I, when I got back, I said, well, where do you get your electric motors? Cause I was gone for eight or nine years. Oh, you go to the same place. And I went in there and I talked to these guys. And by this time I was also teaching ancient history. And one time I went in there and the guy said, uh, Hey, I got to ask you something. I thought, Oh, wow. It's going to be about electric motors. He goes, uh, what, you teach, don't you? I said, yeah. And he said, I, I got to ask this, which is the best history of Alexander the Great? And I said, what? <laughs> and he says, well, I like Peter Green's, but it seems like it's kind of flashy, but it's not in depth. And I said, well, do you know, Wilma? oh, yeah, I know Walt Robin Lane Fox, the Fox guy. Yeah, I like that, too. It's big. But I want to know which is more. And I said, have you ever looked at this old one, Droyce? And yeah, I, they, I have that one. So then he said, come on in. So I went in the, into this dank place I had remembered as a child, right, with a guy. And they were, he and his brother were still rewinding motors. But you wouldn't believe it, Jack. The whole wall was filled with ancient history books. And these two Mexican-American mechanics who were excellent technicians then would – I had a little table. And they said, sit down. And then they said – God, what was the wrong with the first triumvirate? Why, why, why did Crassus end up dead and, and Caesar's on top? And, <laughs> and I said, well, what do you mean? And he said, well, that book, Momsen. And I said, you read Frederick Momsen? Yeah, the last volume. And I, I could not believe it. I, hadn't, I never had an in-depth conversation on ancient history at Cal State Fresno like that. So I was thinking, you know, of, of that the other day, because uh, last year I had some landscapers fast forward 20 years 
And I get all these, everybody gets stuff in the mail. So you get, publishers will send you books to blurb or to review, right? And they're those bound, you know, bound galleys. Right. Yeah. yeah. I, sometimes they're, but I get maybe, I don't know, in my office at Stanford or here, I probably get 10 or 15 a week. And I try to, sometimes I try to blurb them, sometimes, I, but they just pile up. So I had been cleaning out the storeroom and I just, these bound, I must've had 50 there. I threw in this, we have a big ag bin, right? Like those dumpster bin. Right. And there's one of these landscapers, another guy, Mexican American guy, he was in the dumpster. And I thought, wow, that's weird. I better tell him, you know, that there, I throw my dog crap in there. And he was going through these. And I said, and he, he thought I was going to get mad. So I walked around. He said, I'm, I'm still working. I said, I'm not trying to take, I said, no, no, I just wonder why you're in the dumpster. He goes, I love these books. And I said, really? He said, yeah, I love Sappho. And you've got a new translation. This new book says translation of Sappho. And I said, you like the Iliad? Yes, I like the Iliad, but I like the Odyssey. Everybody likes it. And he gave me a long discussion about wow. classics. And then he asked if he could take as many as he wanted. And he took about 50 of them, put them in a box and put them in his truck. And so at the end of the day, he drove off with all these classics books out of my dumpster. But he was not a dilettante. He was informed. Yeah. So I thought. Did he know who you were, you think? No, no, huh. he didn't. He didn't. Uh, the electric motor guy knew that I had, was right. teaching at Cal State Fresno, but this guy didn't. He just thought it was weird that he saw wow. yeah. all these books. Bonanza, and I, right. And I was thinking of that all. So I wrote this piece on things like that. And we had a neighbor and I wrote about him. I'll use a pseudonym in Fields Without Dreams called Bus Berzagas. But he was a PhD candidate in English literature at the University of Colorado. This is sort of like Camry Rowe. Remember with Doc in that character? Yeah. He was kind of like that character, kind of an eccentric, but really brilliant guy. And he was farming, but he didn't, he just didn't farm. He did all of the work himself, pesticides, welding, you name it, tractor. But he just didn't decide, he decided not to turn in his uh, final chapter. So he was an ABD, and then he had kind of a really great year at Cal State Fresno. And then, you know, politics, he didn't get renewed. So he went and farmed, got sick of academia. He hated academia like I did. Right. But but one time, you know, he came in. I, I hadn't seen him in years, but in the early 80s, he came in with his truck. It was all torn up, old diesel pickup, loud. Those are first, you know, coming. Perkins engines really made those noises, and so did Cummings engines. But anyway, he came in and he, he just started talking about he'd gone up to Oregon, um, you know, to the Shakespearean Festival. And he's and he was telling me he saw Macbeth. So I don't know much. I, I, you know, I know I'd read the plays and everything, but I said, well, which is his best play? And what followed was like one hour <laughs> Why he's le leaning on his shovel with all this crap in the back of his pickup, and he's give <laughs> giving me a, a long, scholarly excursus of plot, characterization, language of Macbeth versus Hamlet, and why Macbeth was a better play. And then he said, but of course, I thought he was done. Then he went into King Lear, and that was his favorite. But it was... It was just brilliant. And yet he's yeah. out. Nobody ever talks to him because he was out just by himself. And I can think of a Japanese-American guy who ran a pesticide company. 
and I thought he would die because every time I would go in there to get pesticides on a Monday morning, they'd, they'd, you know, yeah, lift up, lift up the garage door, you know, and say, and then Fog come out. Yeah, oh my God. It was like Zygon B came out. Oh, yeah. and, and anyway, I thought that guy, but I think a lot of them were fungicides because he and his brother lived in their nineties. So maybe the, had the opposite effect of, preservation but Which anyway forest yeah <laughs> anyway he was a japanese american and his uh as a little boy he had gone to the manzanore camp i think so we, and he was very angry still but he was very i liked him a lot of people didn't like him i really liked him and he gave me he started talking about the 1930s and how japan uh gravitated toward anti-American fascism. And he gave me the most complete description of the debate over the Roosevelt oil boycott of Japan, that we wouldn't sell them oil and we didn't sell them rubber. And then that they had some grievances. And then more importantly, he gave me a, a nice description of, as well as that, he gave a, a nice description of that after 1940, and I had written about this in an article, but it was very, you know, if Japan had have just been careful, he said, if Japan had just been careful and taken the Dutch East Indies and the breadbasket of Vietnam, and maybe, maybe you're not the rubber of Malaysia and not attack Singapore and the Philippines, they would have had the whole European orphaned Right. Uh, natural resources because Holland didn't exist anymore. It was under German occupation. France was on German occupation. The Vietnam, Cambodia didn't exist. And he said they could have just what? And he was, you know, lamenting it. It wasn't right. quite pro Japanese militarism, yeah. but it was a very sophisticated. It made sense, right? Yeah. yeah Geo <laughs> it was here was a guy that came out pulling a fertilizer dome that was going to drop off to me. And right. as he started to talk, he said to me, hey, you didn't you just come from Stanford? I said, yeah. And he said, I want to ask you something. And then followed this sophisticated geostrategic layout of what Japan was facing from 1936 to 1941. And that happened all the time. You know, and I thought, wow, you never judge a man by what he does or necessarily that can help never how right. he dresses, never his accent, never his race, never his wealth. And if you don't do that, you'll be surprised, but you yeah. always recognize talent and intelligence. I've always tried after I had the, that experience, I always tried to do that teaching. You know, I, I met some of the most brilliant kids that you wouldn't think were brilliant. They were, you would just wouldn't expect it. Right. And their poverty or their tattoos or their <laughs> their hair, you know, or their clothes. Right. It just so that was one good thing about America. I really like. And I wrote about it, and especially in the agrarian context. Well, that Victor, it's a it's a wonderful. Uh, uh, well, it's a two part series as of today. I don't know if you're doing doing more. But uh, again, I want to encourage our listeners to visit uh com, the blade of perseus and and sign up and that sort of stuff is relentless on the on the, on the website hey victor let's uh, switch to um i heard you're a military historian right you know a thing or two about the military actually if you if you wouldn't mind in just half a minute and i really mean half a minute would you explain again like what your uh, the military 
operation, that's the wrong word, uh, program you run at Hoover? Well, very quickly, can we do this yes. one half time? Uh, the former and beloved director who just recently passed away, John Racian, said to me, hey, we're war, revolution and peace, Victor. That is our motto. And we don't have a military history program. This was in 2009. So I am delegating you. You travel with me for a year and we're going to raise money. But you have to. So we went everywhere. They were wonderful donors, very generous. And so I, I came up with the idea that I have a symposium of the best military analyst officers, historians who would look at contemporary problems, but not like most people do, you know, with game theory or, or contemporary geo strategy, but in context of history. And so I called it uh, the military history working group or the right. official term was uh, military history and contemporary conflict. And then we, I created a magazine called Strategica, S-T-R-A-T-E-G-I-K-A. And I had the idea of having a background essay on a topic. I think this month I still have tanks on there. Are tanks obsolete? Background on it. And then, yes, they are obsolete or maybe they're not or, and no. And then I have commentary. And who contributes? I have about 30 people that are members and I raise money and then I fly them all out to Stanford and uh, put them up in a nice hotel and dinner. And then for a whole day used to be two days, but it got to be kind of too long. We can, we discussed this happened this March on Ukraine in the context of what are, what the past can tell us about what's going to happen in Ukraine. And I, I deliberately tried to get a variety of different, opinion. So we have former Fox commentator, Ralph Peters. We have Bing West, H.R. McMaster, Andrew Roberts, historian, Neil Ferguson, the historian, Jim Mattis, the former Pentagon Secretary of Defense. Um, and we have they're just a, we had Angela. Yeah, robust, uh, uh, robust yeah, discussions. Yeah, yeah. Yes. And there are very learned people there. And because they have there's neocons, paleocons, cons, libertarians, isolationists, interventionists, nation builders, uh, you name it. And there's a lot of Democrats and left some left wing people. And they it gets kind of heated sometimes, but yeah. uh, the level of intelligence analysis is really great. And then. Uh, my assistant, David Berkey, who's a research associate, he edits, he's the managing editor. And then we have these other periphery things. We have book reviews of all the classics. This group uh, contributes about 500 words on, say, Thucydides' history or Machiavelli or Sun Tzu. You can go online at our website. Uh, it's affiliated with the Hoover Institution, hoover.org. And you can find book reviews. And we have something called History in the News, where one of the members volunteers for four weeks and every uh, picks in a major event that's going on the day, uh, such as Ukraine or overflights, as I said, in the last uh, of the Aegean, and tries to explain that from something that happened similarly in the past. Okay. And that's, and that's, that's what I do. That was about three minutes. That was just six times as long. Just to give, uh, particularly our new listeners who, who the uh, understanding of your, uh, you're not just a, you know an ancient classics 
scholar. In addition to that, you are very immersed in things military. So I just wanted that from time to time, uh, our, our new listeners should be apprised of some of these things. And I think it's a lead in also yeah. for Sam, the- Sammy has, as we're talking on our other two, as you know, yeah. I'm supposed to, according to her prompt, start with the Persian Wars, then go all the way to the present. So we've given 10 minutes to 15 on Persian Wars, Peloponnesian Wars, the Wars of Alexander the Great, the Wars of the Roman Republic, the Wars of the Two Triumvirates and the Roman Civil Wars, the Barbarian Invasions, the Rise of the Byzantine Empire, the Challenge of Islam, the Fall of Byzantium, the Crusades, the Hundred Years' War, and we just finished the Spanish Conquest of Mexico. And I guess we're now about 1550, and I hope we go back to Lepanto or something. But oh, we're, sure, we're, yeah. We're, yeah, we're doing that as well. Yeah. Well, Victor, in a more modern context, as in this week, uh, so let's talk about the Navy, the United States Navy. And I'm looking at you here, the newspaper in the background. This is, sounds a little like Rush Limbaugh. The Epoch Times, which I get, I subscribe. I love the Epoch Times. Some people say the Epic Times, but I know the people there call it Epoch. Um, Navy says it needs a budget, not stopgap funding to meet China threat. So, you know, as we're talking today, uh, we're in this suspended budget situa- situation. The Navy really, though, wants not to have annual continuing resolutions. Boy, we need to fight China. We we need uh, um, a, a budget that's distinct for military spending, etc. This is. Uh, Admiral uh, Michael Gilday, he's the chief of yeah, I remember operations. That name rings a bell, doesn't it, Jack? <laughs> why, why does it ring a bell, Victor? Uh, I think he testified during the Millie Austin yeah. uh, white supremacy, white rage, white privilege. And he, as the chief of naval operations, made similar allegations. Yeah, so that's that's what I want to get into a little bit here. And it has to do with the Navy the Navy drag queen, the Navy's digital ambassador. We've seen these stories. This story now is about over a week old. By the time this podcast is out, it's maybe two weeks old. Um, Joshua Kelly, yeoman, second class Joshua Kelly, um, is also known as Harpy Seals. And he is the Navy's digital ambassador in drag. And Victor, why are military... In this case, with the Navy, which has such priorities, right? Because there are such drastic threats against America, would two Americans who 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 they they need the support of them um, portray the Navy in these just you know woke ways, cartoonish ways, insane ways? And how do they not think that Americans, you know, dispirits Americans? Now, when you need the Americans to to rouse and demand, yes, we need to spend more money on on the, the, the Navy in order to keep up with China's relentless daily threats. It just... It, it I think I have the... It's the Budweiser phenomenon. Why would Budweiser, who deliberately used to have a bunch of big horses, Clydesdales, and talk about American freedom and tradition and honor on July 4th and appeal to the working muscular classes to buy Bud Light and Bush, why would they redirect and get some Ivy League isolated PR person to hire Dylan Mulvaney to talk about transgenderism? Unless 
the point was to destroy your brand. So if I if I were going to be facetious, I would say this, that you're right. The Navy, the Air Force, the Marines and the Army are up against it, even though they spend more money in absolute dollars and they spend probably almost as much in GDP, if not more than China. They don't have as many ships as China. They don't have as many hypersonic weapons. They don't have as big a military as China. So to rectify that, it seems to me that you would go to the people through thick and thin that always are for large military budgets, 4%, 5% of GP. That is the bedrock working middle class that exudes patriotism, conservatism, military families, etc. right? The conservative side. So why are they doing all these things? So if you put it this way, maybe I'm just being facetious, but to show you how ridiculous it is, maybe the military said, huh, this is our goal. We want to make sure we have a recruitment shortfall. Recruitment shortfall. We want to be at least, I don't know, we want to be at least a division short in the army. We want to make sure we don't have enough planes. We want to offend all of our Republican people in Congress that were our bulwark supporters. And we want to make damn sure that we go after white males in the military that have died at double their rates in Iraq and Afghanistan or the traditional uh, locus classicus of, pe- classicus of people who go to Vietnam, first Gulf War, second Gulf War, etc. We want to do all of that. So how do we do it? Well, let's start having a drag queen recruit people. Let's have mandatory woke indoctrination. Let's let in six and a half million people at the border with no vaccination, but kick out any veteran with combat experience that doesn't want to get a vaccination, no questions asked. And let's leave $50 billion of military hardware to go into the International Terrorist Mart in Afghanistan. And let's promote on the basis of race and gender. And let's talk about having electric uh, tanks, for example, uh, and that will so alienate our traditional su- source of support that we will not be adequately funded. And if that's not enough, let's make sure that every secretary of defense, assistant secretary of defense, associate secretary of defense, chairman of the joint chiefs, member of the joint chiefs, that when they retire, they rotate into Raytheon, General Dynamics, Lockheed, Northrop, Boston Consulting Group, and make a lot of money selling their influence. And if we can do all that, maybe, maybe, maybe we'll lose the support of the American people at a critical time. When, and that's all I can think of, Jack. That's it. Well, that's, it, had, it had to be deliberate. I mean, who's the genius in the Pentagon? If you thought of a way to destroy the military, you couldn't have done a better job. Could you? You could leave 
you you had the example of Saigon 75. So why would you repeat it? Kabul 21, only it was a lot more. We didn't leave $50 billion of stuff in, or maybe, you know, fly the pride flag from the embassy or gender studies at the University of Kabul or pregnant, was it pregnant air suits for women aviators? And just emphasize all that. So the point is, I guess, that we don't want Jack Armstrong from Des Moines, Iowa. We just don't want him. We don't want a guy that looks like Mr. Penny, that the Samaritan who put the, the guy in the headlock, unfortunately, who right. died. We don't want that guy. He's too big. He's too white, too conservative. We don't. He probably was a lousy Marine. That's what they're probably thinking. We would rather have the homeless guy, Mr. Needley, in our. He's a person of color. He's got a different background. He shows talent. He had showed talent with the Michael Jackson impersonation. I think that's all I can come up with. I'm serious. Yeah. They're just so, deliver- they're doing every single thing. And then you can see that China's delighted. Yeah. Delighted. And I don't know. I mean, well, it's, it's, so, it's sort of like the halftime show at the Super Bowl. Or how, if you were in the NBA, how could you get 70 million people in the final uh, NBA game audience, televised audience, global, in 1998? And how would you say in 1998, hmm, I would like in 25 years to reduce this audience down to 4 million and brag about what an increase we'd had over 3 million the year before. Now, what do we have to do to get 70 million viewers to 4 million? And somebody would say, hmm, well, maybe we could get the team not to stand up for the flag. That's a good idea. Maybe we could get the best stars of the age to say America was racist. That's a good idea. Maybe we could get a coach to to start defending the Chinese and crap on America. Maybe they could all refuse to go to the White House. That's a good idea. And that's where we are. It, these people are deliberately destroying their own product. They're eating their seed corn. They're, they're cannibals that eat their own arms off. Well, I don't, it's one thing I, if the NBA wants to do that, we can live without basketball. But, uh, you know. It's hard we're to gonna, imagine gonna, living yeah, with that. <laughs> somebody at some point, I make a prediction. There are 20,000 of the best fighters in the world that went through the cauldron of Afghanistan and Iraq at some point over the last 20 years. Right. And they have been promoted to lieutenant. I mean, major, lieutenant, colonel, colonel, maybe even one star. And they are being held up because of the woke revolution. In other words, the fact that they have stellar battle records or their artillery unit had 98% accuracy or their air wing never had to have an aborted flight, that doesn't matter. But in extremists, at the 11th hour, we're going to get a normal presidency back and we're going to get a normal defense establishment back. And they're going to go back to those ranks and they're going to say, that guy, that guy, was a hero in Afghanistan. That guy was wonderful. That And this guy was the best soul. And they're going to say, they don't, they're not obsessed with transgenderism. They're not obsessed with race. They're just normal people, but they're wonderful soldiers and they're very smart. And we're going to, and they're going to have to come in and save the military. 
Yeah. Well, it needs sort to of what happened in World, That's you know, really World War II. I don't think Marshall really did have a black book. He said he did. It's controversial, but George Marshall was made Army Chief of Staff, right? And he looked at the peacetime army, and he said these people are all too old. So he took a guy like. Eisenhower in his late 40s, early 50s, and promoted him over 240 people. And then he started to look around and he said, there's that crazy Patton out in a backwater and they don't, he's a natural armored man and they promoted him. And they started looking at these division commanders and all of a sudden there were people like Matthew Ridgway or James Gavin, new people. And they just, they just created a whole new army that all come out of the Army War College or Fort Leavenworth Infantry, et cetera. And it turned out by the end of World War II, you could make the argument that the United States had the best one, two, and three-star generals in the entire entire world. Those division commanders that were commanding divisions or corps, one and two stars or three stars, you know, Gavin and uh, Lightning Joe Collins and Troy Middleton and and then, you know, I'm not a big fan of Omar Bradley, but he was solid. And George Patton and uh, all of them. They were, and then look at the right. Army Army Air, Air Force, Army Air Corps that became the Army Air Force. They got Tui Spatz and they got Hap Arnold and the, the mad genius that probably was smarter than all of them. But not, although he was hated, was Curtis LeMay. Curtis, yeah. and the, but that was a meritocratic system. And so we'll we'll have to go back there or perish. So I'm yeah. hoping that if Trump or whoever the Republican candidate is that can win this election, that one of the things they do, they consult with traditional military commanders and they find people who have a record of military efficacy and excellence and they don't care what color or what gender they are. The, mar- the new Marshall Plan. Well, Victor, we're going to... Uh... Uh, talk about one more, maybe two more things quickly, but uh, including the Bradley prizes. And we're going to get to that right after this final important message. Achieving a gorgeous grin from home isn't a total mystery with Bite Clear aligners. Just don't be surprised if all of your sleuthing friends start asking, What's your secret? Begin by ordering your at-home impression kit today for only $14.95. Bite Clear Aligners are doctor-directed and delivered to your door. Treatment costs thousands less than braces. Plus, they offer flexible financing, accept eligible insurance, and you can pay with your HSA FSA. Get 80% off your impression kit when you use code WONDERY at Byte.com. That's B-Y-T-E dot com. Start your confidence journey today with Byte. Delve into the shadows of the mind. With Sleeping Dogs, a gripping murder mystery starring Academy Award winner Russell Crowe. Now available on digital. Crowe portrays an ex-homicide detective unraveling a brutal murder he can't recall. Uncovering secrets from his past, he learns a chilling truth. It's best to let sleeping dogs lie. Visit sleepingdogsmovie.com slash Wondery to watch Sleeping Dogs. Now on digital. That's sleepingdogsmovie.com slash Wondery. We're back with the Victor Davis Hanson Show. Uh, This episode should be up on the 
18th or so of May, Thursday-ish. Uh, frankly, by that time, even though Victor and I are talking now, he's he's out in his farm in California, and I'm in my bedroom in Milford, Connecticut. We will have met in Washington, D.C. on uh, Tuesday, because that is a, a, a big day. for. Can you, can you promise that, that the flight from Fresno to Dal- <laughs> uh, Phoenix will be on time so I can make my hour connection? Well, Victor, knowing that you're going to be on the plane, I am sure it's going to need to to stop in Mexico for extra gas. And then that's happened before. And yeah. I've, I've been on my all time record at the Fresno Airport, I think, was 14 wheelchairs. And we missed the missed the flight. I thought so. you told me it was it was nineteen. That's I, not, I, no no that was oh, Palm oh, that's Beach. That's in the Palm Beach. Yeah yeah. I was in yeah. Palm Beach. I Victor and I traded some. I have. I think. I mean, I I had a ruptured appendix, and that's I was in a wheelchair on the way home from Libya. But one of the things I I I, I think it's great what we do. But my only rule would be this: if you board a plane, right first, yeah, on on a wheelchair. Right. And you, you know, you you have a lot of luggage, so you have access to accessible empty overheads. And you then and you're put in there. And each time, you know, it, it can delay a flight if there's 10 of them, 10 wheelchairs. But my point is, when the plane lands, would you please request wheelchair service so that you right. can come out? But that doesn't happen. I see so often people that go on first and then somehow mysteriously during the flight, there's, I guess, the oxygen and the recirculating air duct or whatever it is creates mythical fountain of youth. Well, because I close, see people, close to the angels. I think yes, that could be maybe it. what it is. But I, <laughs> yeah. I have seen people right behind me that had trouble getting, you know, they had to be in there. And then all of a sudden they got a lot of space and then zoom, I got a quick connection. I got to zoom out right. rather <laughs> rather than be the last person to board, uh, first to board and last to leave with wheelchair. So it's a miracle. It's a miracle. I said, that, I said that to one person and they got really angry at me because they said, well, uh, if you, if you have a bad leg or you got vertigo and you get to sit for a while, that's okay. And then you can probably make it out an extremist when you have to get a connection. But I don't mm-hmm. buy that. You either either need assistance or you don't. Now I know people that did this on the National Review cruises. They were wheelchaired in, and then uh, you know they were out dancing that night. So <laughs> it's there's a there be it'd be interesting to see if the airlines ever did a study on how you know is there a ten percent faker level on this. Anyway, anyway, we are hopefully meeting on uh, Tuesday the sixteenth because the Bradley prizes uh, uh, awards uh, happen that day. It's a wonderful. I've been to them a couple of times. It's a uh, you know, old home week. See a lot of old friends there, but three people uh, win uh, the Bradley Prize, and Victor is a, is on the board of the Bradley Foundation. And Victor, would you would you mind telling us who the recipients are and 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 why they why they uh, have uh, been awarded? And the award is pretty. It's about isn't it three hundred thousand dollars? No, it's two hundred. It was going up. It's two hundred fifty thousand. But and it used to be four people got it, and now it's three. And we have uh, a selection member. I can't say who's on it, but uh, board members, some board members, and then we invite outside uh, participants. And we kind of we don't have formal categories, but 
we have two guidelines. One is a person is, although they're being rewarded for past service uh, to traditional America, uh, they have to have a, a potential that once they get the prize, it's not a retirement medal, that they're going to be, that the prize is honoring what they did do and is a uh, is preemptively honoring for what even greater things they will right. do in the future. And then the okay. second, second is we don't have separate categories, but there does seem to be uh, one or one slot for somebody in the academic world that publishes books or, you know, history, science, economics, that's affiliated with a think tank or, or can be or a university. One person that's involved with organizing or a movement. And then one person who has had a pretty high profile in government corporations or something like that. And sometimes it doesn't quite work out that way. But this year we had, uh, and you know her better than I do, Nina Shea. She's a, I, I, a religious freedom attorney for the Hudson Institute. The day she, the day the news came out that she won, by sheer coincidence, she was. Uh, getting on an Amtrak train in Washington that I was getting on. And by sheer coincidence, and her husband is Adam Meyerson, who's a great friend, and Adam used to run the Philanthropy Roundtable. They, they sat in front of me, and wow. I talked to Nina for a while, and and she was she was look, hoping to get more information about, uh, for some reason, for a talk on Solzhenitsyn, and I ended up, I sent I sent her some Solzhenitsyn books. So, yeah, she's a, she's been a great um, champion and a frequent writer for yeah, for religious freedom, uh, oppressed Christians and oppressed Jews around the world. She's a wonderful lady. Yeah. And then we have a colleague uh, at the Hoover Institution of Mind, John Cochran. He he combines uh, the best of both worlds. He's a very well-known scholar. He was, a, he was formerly at the University of Chicago Business School and Economics Department. Now he's at the Hoover Institution. And he's written books on fiscal policy, especially things about what causes inflation, what to degree is it printing money, the money supply or uh, deficit spending, et cetera, et cetera. So, and, but he also has a very popular blog called The Grumpy Economist that everybody kind of logs into uh, when they want um, information about the here and now. But he's not, a, he's not a grumpy guy. He's a happy warrior. No, I, I don't know why he – yeah, he doesn't – I don't know. I think it's it, – the grumpy economist is supposed to suggest it's contrarian. It's not just conventional yeah. wisdom that he's willing to say things. He's outspoken, but he's one of the nicest, uh, most affable people at the Hoover Institution. So the, it's just the opposite. It should be called the ungrumpy or the affable yeah. economist. But yeah. I think the nature of his advice might to some people – appear grumpy. And then we have uh, a very high profile people, uh, Bet Betsy DeVos, Honorable Betsy DeVos, who was Secretary right. of Education of Donald Trump. And she wasn't just Secretary of Education because we don't give the award to every Secretary of Education, obviously. But she took on uh, a lot of unpopular, very unpopular questioning the dominance and the monopolies of teachers unions promoting charter schools, promoting uh, homeschooling, promoting choice. Yeah. choice and questioning the government's role in mandatory, you know, critical race theory or indoctrination classes. Yeah. And so that 
she was on the front line to the point when she speaks somewhere, she often draws pickets and, and right. protesters. She, she's a, I love her. She is a, the she's a wonderful, lady, she's a wonder, wonderful person. Lady. Yeah. I, and, be, and prior to her being the secretary of education, as you allude, Victor, she did tremendous for, for a decade plus. Yeah, there are a lot of kids who have choice now in Florida, Tennessee, and other states because of what Betsy DeVos did. She's vilified by the left. She's vilified, you know, as a racist. But there, there are a lot of black kids in America today who have choice because of what Betsy DeVos did. Well, I mean, prior to, prior she, she, she knew firsthand because she's from a very distinguished, wealthy family, the DeVosses, and they're known for their philanthropy. And she lives in Michigan. So she obviously had firsthand knowledge and interest in the Detroit public school system. And, uh, you know, a lot of school systems in the old industrial belt of Michigan and Ohio and Wisconsin and how those cities are run. The school systems are run by the teachers unions and how people who cannot afford to get out of those inner city schools are done an injustice. And so she was trying to offer them alternatives, whether that was parochial schools or schools choice. And that drew the ire of the teacher train. So there's three really wonderful people. And then on Tuesday night, much different than the left wing version of the Oscars or the Tonys or right. the, the White House correspondent. There's no soapbox opera, uh, operatic speeches or any of that crap politicalization. I know it's center right. But we have a wonderful master of ceremonies, Kimberly Strassel from the Wall Street Journal. Yeah. And she goes out and gives tells a joke or two. And then she introduces and she guides us through the evening. And then and we usually have a chorus uh, or a music music of some sort, band or singers, very old fashioned America, you know, traditional patriotic songs, folk songs. And then in between these events, we bring out one of the three. We have a little film about their life. They um, accept the, the award. They give a brief talk. And then we wrap up the finale with Kimberly interviewing the three of them in sort of a we make an ad hoc living room and they're on couches and she talks about issues of the day. It's really good. And then there's kind of a extravaganza. It's become, I've been on the board, I think 10 years and it's become kind of famous now. It's, oh, yeah. it's yeah. a huge uh, reception, lavishly supplied. And it seems to get almost every conservative on the, in the whole country that shows up there. Yeah. And my only problem is that I usually have to fly out the next day at, six in the morning. So I don't stay very late. <laughs> well, it's you turn into a pumpkin. I do. Well, yeah, it's a great night. It's a, a Bradley uh, foundation is a, you know, one of the bedrock institutions of conservative movement and, and supports so many uh, good um, nonprofits and other institutions. Yeah, and that, the, the awards is a wonderful ceremony. That's really good. I, I've been on a lot of boards. Uh, both government boards, the American Battle Monuments Commission, the 1776 Commission, uh, the Harry Guggenheim Commission uh, uh, Foundation, and a couple of others, all nonprofit. But this, the something about the Bradley Foundation, I've never seen the board members take it so seriously and be so qualified. Yeah. And they're, they're across the legal world, the corporate world, the academic world. But boy, when you go to a meeting, everybody is prepared. 
It starts exactly on time. It's run by Rick Graber, who's a masterful administrator, and people wear a coat and tie. They're formally dressed. Everybody's polite. There's no shouting. There's no. There's some disagreements on the grant proposals, but and the staff is just wonderful, and it just runs like clockwork. And yeah. if, if if the Bradley people say this is going to start at eight and it's going to end at noon, it will end at noon. Yeah. Yeah. And so it's, 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 it's really amazing. And I've been on other, you know, boards and things with, Hey, what do you, when do you want to start? Hey, and then somebody goes off in a tangent for an hour and nobody stops them, you know, but yeah. not, not this board. Well, um, kudos to the winners. And um, I, I'm now I'm looking forward to seeing you on Tuesday. And this, of course, will air after we have met. Hopefully your plane gets you there. So, Victor, want to thank our listeners for uh, listening. We've come to the end. I got a little bit of a long um, reader comment. And, of course, this comes from iTunes and Apple, where our listeners uh, – um, I said reader comment, <laughs> listener comment uh, – where our listeners can – uh, rate the show zero to five stars. Nearly everyone gives it five stars. Some people leave comments, and this is one. And it's uh, kind of plays back to what just talking about with Betsy DeVos. It's titled "Thank You for Teaching True History." I've been a secondary world history teacher, secondary school world history teacher in my state for seventeen years. Thank you for your April fifteenth episode on Islamic conquest and the Ottomans. I found that teaching this subject in my world history classes is like walking on landmines of woke responses from students who've been indoctrinated by the left. When I was in high school in the 80s, I never remember challenging a teacher on the facts we learned from our books. But now the textbooks are so sanitized on Islam that they don't talk about the brutality of the Muslim conquests. When I point out that Islam was primarily spread through warfare in its early years, compared uh, Christianity's first 300 years, which was spread through preaching up until Constantine, Constantine I've gotten student complaints that I am spreading anti-Muslim hate speech. No, I am not. I'm just pointing out the different historical circumstances of the rise of Islam versus the rise of Christianity. At this point, I think ideology has so tainted education that parents ought to homeschool or very carefully seek private education. I'm seeking different kinds of work now, as I find it difficult and frustrating functioning in an environment where ignorant wokeness is given, uh, given a voice over empirical historical research. Incidentally, one student I had even defended, uh, the Indian, uh, one student I had, even defended the Indian Hindu practice of sati, which the British <laughs> eventually outlawed, on the grounds that this is ethically wrong to ever criticize a non-Western culture. Yes, this is high school in America. The nonsense in colleges has trickled down to us now. So I'm done because administrators are cowards and listen to this nonsense and accuse thoughtful and informed teachers of prejudice when these are simply historical facts. Thank you, Victor, for being brave and standing up for true, the truth and true scholarship to Angel's mom. That's uh, signed off. So uh, thank you to Angel's mom. Uh, I think that might what you've written here will probably resonate with a, a lot of other listeners. I'm sure it resonates with 
the a star of the show, Mr. Hans, Professor Hansen. So uh, thank you uh, for that. Thank you for all who write. We read your comments. Uh, one last yeah. note. Yeah, go ahead. Go ahead, Victor. Well, I was just going to say that, I mean, if you look at when I talked about the Ottomans, you talk about the 16th century. And I know that, you know, what Venice or Florence or people like the Borgias or the Savonarola were like, it was a violent world, but there wasn't anything quite institutionalized like the Def Sherme or the use of eunuchs in the harem or the forcible abduction of young girls, 10, 12, 11, and then brought forcibly into the harem or then the succession of one sultan to another involved the, I guess you would call it the institutionalized liquidation of the half-brothers uh-huh. or the idea that Janissaries were, you know, taken from Christian European boys for the most part, kidnapped when they were eight or 10, and then indoctrinated with radical Islam and then separated from their families to create the most zealous psychological terrorizing unit of the Ottoman Empire. So there were things in there that are don't have quite the are the same thing I could say about Tenochtitlan and the Aztecs. But and so if you weren't going to talk about that, you're not talking about history. Right. And right. we all we all talk about the sins of the Holocaust as we should and the uh, other things that were excesses, slavery accepted, but this system institutionalized slavery in a way that even the Europeans were already discussing ways of manumission and liberation and out and you know, even in the fifteenth and sixteenth century there were dissonant voices and not not in the Sultanate. Well, Victor, you're going to get in trouble for telling us the truth there. Yeah. Uh, speaking of, uh, well, oh, we're at the end of the show, except I'm going to say one last thing. Visit civilthoughts.com. Sign up for Civil Thoughts. That's the free weekly email newsletter I write every week for the Center for Civil Society at Amphil, where we are trying to strengthen civil society. I'll leave it at that. You're going to like it. Victor, thanks for all the wisdom. Uh, you you shared and thanks folks for listening and we will be back soon with another episode of the Victor Davis Hanson show thank you and bye bye thank you everybody hey there it's Amanda Head and I am thrilled to introduce to you my new exciting podcast furthermore with Amanda Head broadcasting weekly from sunny Los Angeles California and brought to you by the dynamic just the news podcast network On this fresh and engaging podcast, I delve into the latest news with a little bit of a twist, exploring the furthermore of every story. But this isn't your typical run-of-the-mill news commentary or politically charged program. I interview a diverse range of guests, including business leaders, entertainers, musicians, educators, expert politicians, and many influential figures from both the United States and around the world. So why not make your Mondays, Wednesdays, and Fridays a little more interesting? Tune in on your preferred podcast platform and discover furthermore with Amanda Head on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or wherever you listen to your favorite shows. And don't forget to hit that follow or subscribe button and be sure to download the latest episodes. I can't wait to have you join me on this exciting journey.